Last week, we began a study of one of the shortest letters in the New Testament, that is the epistle of Jude. So let's turn there. It is the last book of the New Testament just before Revelation. We noted at that time that although this book is brief, it only has 25 verses, it's one of the most important New Testament letters and should not be overlooked or ignored because of its brevity. It is overlooked, it is often ignored, but it should not be. And the reason it shouldn't be overlooked is because it addresses an extremely important subject that affects all of us. It addresses the issue of false Christians becoming members of local churches and then turning around and attacking Christianity. We'll look more at who they are next week. They are apostates. But for right now, understand that's the issue. False Christians coming into the church, they turn around, they attack Christianity. And in doing so, the problem is they undermine the faith of true Christians. They undermine the faith of legitimate believers. Now, folks, that was precisely the problem that Jude was addressing in his letter. That's a very relevant subject for us to deal with as well, because we are living in a day when so many Protestant denominations have become liberal in their theology and have rejected the authority of Scripture over their lives and any sound doctrine that they don't agree with. Now, how did this happen? It happened because unsaved individuals not only came into the church, but they became teachers and leaders in those churches and publicly attacked biblical Christianity. Let me give you some examples. I was reading recently the July 12th issue of World Magazine. And I discovered some articles in there addressing some of these issues. As I said, for example, the United States or the U.S. Episcopal Church, as you may know, has a homosexual bishop. I believe he is in charge of the church, Gene Robinson. Homosexual bishop in charge of the church of the U.S. Episcopal Church. And the Presbyterian Church USA, which has been liberal for quite a while, according to an article in World Magazine, and I quote, recently voted to abolish a law that requires all clergy and lay office holders to live either in fidelity within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman or chastity in singleness. In other words, Presbyterian pastors in the denomination known as USA, this is not Presbyterian Church of, of America, this is the USA branch, can sexually behave any way that they want to behave. That's essentially what that... Uh, definition is, and they can be involved if they'd like in a same-sex marriage, or if they prefer, they can be single and engage in sexual relations with whoever they want to engage those relations with. That's the problem. That's the problem. These are churches led by unsaved leaders who denounce biblical Christianity in the name of Christianity. That's the problem. In the name of Christianity. So the letter of Jude, which basically addresses this, this issue 
of people coming into the church and turning around and attacking Christianity is very pertinent to us, very, very relevant to us. Now, as you recall from our first study last week, the letter begins by Jude giving several key and foundational truths about this epistle, and these are truths that we can build upon as we continue probing further into the letter. Now, we already looked at the first two foundational truths, which I'll quickly review, and then we want to focus on the third. First foundational truth is the writer of the letter. You always want to know who wrote the letter because you want to know something about his background, the occasion for the letter, and where he's coming from, his heart, and so forth. Verse 1 says this, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The letter begins by Jude identifying himself. He says he's Jude, the bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, as we said last week, although Jude was a popular name among Jewish Men in the first century, it is really Judas, but it's translated here Jude, as I said, because our English translators really don't want anybody associated with that name Judas, since when you think of Judas, you think of Judas Iscariot. So he's called, translated Jude, but it was a very popular name amongst Jewish men in the first century. We know, though, who this Jude was. We know who this Jude was, although there were many Judes in that day, because he had a famous brother named James. Now, the only reason he would mention James as his brother is this. If James was well known to the churches, why would you say the name James if he wasn't well known? Now, he was well known. This is the James, like Jude, who was a half brother of Jesus. We went in more detail last week. You can get the message and listen to it if you want to fill in the rest. But it means that James and Jude were both half-brothers of the Lord himself. And the reason that Jude doesn't identify himself as Christ's half-brother was because he didn't want to give the erroneous impression that physical kinship to Jesus meant spiritual privileges in the body of Christ. It, it, It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Although related physically to Jesus, Jude is telling us he's just like every other Christian in that he is a slave, and that's what bondservant really is, a slave of Jesus Christ. So Jude is the son of Mary and Joseph, the half-brother to Jesus, the full brother of James. He's the writer of this letter that is named after him. Second foundational truth. The readers of Jude. Who did he write to? Now, according to the end of verse 1, Jude wrote his letter to a group of believers in Christ. We know that they were believers in Christ. This is not an evangelistic letter. This is a letter to believers. He says at the second part of verse 1, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't tell us who these people are in terms of their location. He doesn't mention a city uh, where they had a church. He, He just says that they're believers because they're the called ones. They're the ones who are loved by the Father, and they're the ones who are kept for Jesus Christ. Obviously, these are Christians. Now, we don't know also if this was a single congregation or perhaps Jude was writing to a few congregations, a few individual local churches in a specific geographic location. We have no way of really knowing However, what we do know about these Christians is that Jude sets out to assure them 
that they need never fear losing salvation, even though they are threatened by false teachers in their churches. They must have had this fear as they saw people who they knew who had one time professed to know Christ and then had abandoned Christ. They must have had concerns. Maybe I'll abandon him. Maybe I'll forsake him too. Maybe I'll denounce biblical Christianity. Now, we know that that that's had to be a concern to them because in Jude's opening greetings, he assures them that they will continue in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And he does this by describing them in three ways, all designed to give them assurance. Number one, he tells them that they will never be lost because God has called them to himself by his sovereign elective grace. Now, I realize not all of that is spelt out here, but that's what he's talking about. When he speaks about you're called, you are, you are called into the family of God. This is not the general call. This is that irresistible call when God deals with the elect and brings them to himself. So they are called by the Lord to salvation by God's sovereign elective grace. They didn't invite themselves. They didn't intrude. They were called. He also tells them they'll never lose their salvation because God the Father loves them. And the thought is this, that he loves them with a, with a fatherly love that will never let them be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8. Paul says, what, what will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. He has a father's love and he will never let us go. He also tells them that they are saved eternally because God continues to keep them secure in himself for the day that Christ will take them home to heaven. There is a question in in how this should be translated. Are they kept by Jesus Christ or are they kept for Jesus Christ? Bottom line is it really doesn't doesn't matter and both happen to be true. Now, in addition to this security called loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude tells them in verse 2 all that is available to them in the Lord to help them in their struggles with the false teachers of their churches. Notice verse 2. He says, "May," and this is a prayer wish. This is his desire. This is available for all of us, but this is his desire. Jude can't force this upon them, but he says the resources are there. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now think about this. This is the only place in the New Testament that, that there's a greeting like this. It's all designed to give assurance to these believers. His mercy is available for what? To find strength when they are tempted. To find strength when they are tempted. His peace is available to find calmness of heart when they are Troubled, And I take it he means specifically troubled about what's going on in their church. And his love has been shed abroad in their hearts so that they will obey the Lord and his word under all circumstances. So they need not fear. They need not fear. By the way, that's why he closes this letter by saying in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, you'll never stumble out of the kingdom of God, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. He starts off at the beginning of this letter telling them that they are assured of continuing in the faith. He closes the letter by telling them the same thing because there are some serious things that he has to say in between. Now, as we noted last week, based on all of the Old Testament references found in this letter and and even two references to Jewish literature outside 
of the Bible that Jude mentions in this letter would seem to indicate that his readers, his original readers, were Jewish Christians. And the reason I say that is because not only do you have Old Testament references and Jewish literature, but you have them mentioned without any further clarification. If they were Gentiles, it would seem to me that he would have to say, let me explain what I'm talking about, because the Gentiles would not be as familiar with Old Testament references and certainly not with Jewish Literature. He mentions, as I said last week, the assumption of Moses about his, his body and then um, some literature about Enoch. That's outside of the Bible, not inspired, but the truth of what Jude mentions about them is now inspired because it's in the word of God. So it would seem that these are Jewish believers living somewhere in the Roman Empire. And you have Jude, who is a Jewish Not an apostle, but a Jewish man inspired by God, a leader in the church. According to 1 Corinthians 9.5, he was an itinerant teacher in the church. And he is writing this letter to these folks. Now, why? Why did he write this letter? We move to the third foundational truth of the letter. And I'm actually only going to get into verse 3. There is so much in verse 4, I want to leave it for next week so as to not shortchange you and not shortchange the truth. Now, let me read, though, to you why he wrote this letter. He spells it out in verses 3 and 4. He writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And then he says in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, meaning they've they've crept into the churches secretly. Uh, One translation says they've wormed their way in. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, it's a license to sin, and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as you look at this, let me, let me just ask a question that you can think in your own minds of the answer. And I would assume that most of you, if you've written letters, would say, yes, I, I understand what you're talking about. Have you ever had the experience of having to write a letter that you really didn't want to write? You really didn't want to write it, but you knew that you had to write it. Perhaps uh, you didn't want to write a letter to someone because you knew you had to say some things in it about confronting them concerning uh, a problem or sin in their lives, something that they've done that bothered you in their behavior, and uh, you're not really comfortable writing this. It's an awkward thing, but you know that you have to do that. Or perhaps you have been reluctant to write someone to give them information you knew would not make them Happy. They wouldn't be pleased getting that information. Or maybe you've written a letter trying to clarify a lingering conflict with, with someone and you say, let me explain this, and you've gone through a whole thing. Those are not pleasant letters. You, you really didn't want to write those letters, but you did. Most of us, I think, would say at some point we've had to write letters we wish that we didn't need to write. That's what Jude is saying in verse 3. And that's what Jude did. He tells us in verses 3 and then 4 that he is writing this letter only because of a horrible situation that has just come to his attention. He had intended to write these folks a letter about their common salvation, meaning, and we don't know exactly what he means by that, but something like, 
some aspect of salvation that he was going to focus on. What? We don't know. As I said last week, maybe it was a letter like Romans, which spoke about justification by, by faith alone. Maybe he was going to address a letter focusing on forgiveness of our sins, maybe a letter emphasizing the deity of Christ, something that had to do with salvation, some aspect of salvation. But he tells us God changed his mind and he decided as the spirit of God led him to write a letter dealing with false brethren, apostates, who had infiltrated these churches or perhaps this one church that he's very familiar with. And the only reason he tells us that he wrote this letter which has a negative tone. That's probably why people tend to neglect it as well as Second Peter. It is quite negative. It's hard-hitting. It's difficult. He has some very, very hard language and harsh language to say about these people. He wrote this letter because he loved the people he was writing to. He loved them. And, and let me show you what I mean by that. Notice the very first word of verse 3. It's easy to overlook this in the midst of this whole epistle dealing with false teachers. But he calls them beloved. That's a, that's a tender note. Beloved. He addresses them by calling them beloved, which essentially means that he, he loves them and he considers them his dear friends. In fact, if you have a New International Version, you will notice that that's how the NIV translates this Greek word as dear friends. This isn't the only time that Jude refers to these folks as beloved or dear friends. In verse 17, he says, but you, beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 20, he says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So three times out of 25 verses, he calls them his dear friends, those that he, he loves dearly. See, Jude is a shepherd at heart. This is a pastoral letter. This is a letter warning a flock. This is a letter written to people he cared about that he's trying to protect. Now, it's important that we understand this because we see that how Jude feels about his readers. He has some very difficult things to say about false teachers that are not pleasant, but they are significant and necessary. And so he wrote these things to these dear friends of his as a loving shepherd. Now, let's look more closely at verse 3 and see why Jude wrote such a letter. Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, and here's the key, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Now, based on these words, we know the purpose and the theme of the entire letter. This tells us. He says that he wrote them in order to urge them to contend for the faith. If you want to get a label on this book, a theme of the book, a handle on what is this book about, Jude is about contending for the faith. In other words, Jude writes this letter to rouse or stir up these Christians to fight for the faith. That's what the letter is about. And the Greek word that he uses for contend has in it, the word that we translate into English as agonize, agony, agonize. It was a word which was used often in Greek literature to refer to an athletic struggle to overcome 
an opponent, much as what we are seeing in the Olympic Games. It was also used, wasn't limited to that. That's how primarily the word is used in, in a context of athletics. But it was also used to speak of other conflicts and other struggles and, and debates and even lawsuits as people would debate and, and uh, argue with one another. Now, what Jude is calling his readers and really by way of application, all Christians to do is to engage in the battle of fighting for what he calls the faith. The faith. Now, what does he mean by the faith? It's important, and we have to know this, because you can't fight for something if you don't know what it is. And this is the theme of the book. So it's important to know that Jude is not talking about our personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As important as that is, there are other scriptures that address that. But this isn't one of them. There are other scriptures that tell us to be strengthened in our personal trust and in our confidence in the word of God. But that is subjective and internal. That's your personal faith. But that's not what this is talking about. What Jude is referring to here in this letter is not subjective faith. It is the objective truth, propositional objective truth of Christianity. The faith, there is a, whenever there is a definite article before faith, it means the body of biblical beliefs. It is biblical Christianity, or if you want to put it this way, it is the gospel message about Christ and salvation. It is essentially the New Testament, the New Testament. It is what Luke tells us in Acts 2, verse 42, when he says that the church at Jerusalem continued daily in first thing, he said, Apostolic doctrine, the apostles teaching. That's what we're talking about. In fact, let me just show you a few places that that deal with the same issue. Paul used this very same expression in Galatians 123. So let me have you turn there. It's important that you that you grasp this because otherwise the book won't make sense to you. This is the the major uh, command that Jude is giving. We are to contend for the faith. So if it is his major command, then we ought to know what he's talking about. In Galatians 1, verse 23, Paul said, But only they kept hearing, speaking of himself, he who was once persecuting us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. People in the church, as they heard about Saul of Tarsus being a converted man, they said the man who who once persecuted us, he's now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy. Not talking about their personal faith, talking about the gospel. The gospel. He he now preaches the faith, the gospel message. Notice what Paul had to say just a few books later to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. It's not the exact phrase, but the concept is the same. He says in verse 27... Only conduct yourselves, Philippians 1, 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm. Notice this in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. There you have similar thought, the faith of the gospel. Now, as we think back. We go back to Jude. We see that Jude tells us that we are to engage in fighting for the body of truths originally taught by the apostles. 
Why? Because what was taught by the apostles to the early church is for us as well. That's why he adds a very important explanation of the faith that he's talking about and why it is so critical for us to fight for it. He says at the end of verse 3, which, speaking of the faith, the body of New Testament truths, which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is an extremely important statement because it tells us that the doctrines that define our faith are not changing. They are not changing. They have, he says, once and for all, meaning only once, not continuing to happen, only once they have been handed down to the saints, meaning it was delivered to believers in Christ as a precious deposit from God. The saints are believers. Now, it's important to understand that Jude isn't saying that God gave all of his word at one time, because that's, that's not true. Different New Testament writers over a course of several years wrote the New Testament. This is called progressive revelation. God didn't just jump it all at once. He gave progressive revelation. So he's not saying that all at one time it came to us. The New Testament books, as I said, were written at different times in the first century. But what he is saying is that once... Once he gave his word, once these New Testament books were completed with the book of Revelation written, we believe, about 90 A.D., no new revelation from God has been given to the Lord's people. No new revelation. I like the way John MacArthur puts it when he writes, The faith refers to the content of Christianity, the revelation of God, the whole body of teaching that makes up God's word and this revelation was delivered once and for all he writes in the past and is complete in the Bible no new revelation is being added the content of the faith was finalized at a point of time in history and is unchangeable Now, scripture teaches that Jesus gave his apostles God's word to teach the church and once they did this as recorded in the New Testament books and letters, there's no more revelation coming from God. That is extremely critical that we understand this. This is precisely what the writer to the Hebrews was talking about when he opens his book. Remember how the writer opens Hebrews? He says, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, he's saying in Old Testament times, God spoke to the people in many different ways, uh, visions, direct revelation, all kinds of ways, dreams. But he says, notice, verse 2, in these last days, and the thought here is in these final days, the days of Messiah, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Yes, God in the past spoke in many different ways and through many different uh, avenues, but in these final days he's spoken unto us in his Son, and that's what we call the New Testament. It's about his Son. Now, this is very significant, as I said, very important truth for us to understand, because there are people telling us today that God is giving new revelation. Who tells us this? Well, cults do. False religions do. One of the distinguishing marks of a cult is that they always add to God's word. That's why, for example, in Mormonism, you have the book 
of Mormon. Some other cult, you'll have some messianic teacher, type teacher who has the final authority or tradition or watchtower or something. It's never the Bible alone. Some special book that they claim is from God. So that's always the mark of a false religion and especially a cult. Now, in addition, much more subtle than that, is that there are those in the charismatic movement who teach, in fact, all in the charismatic movement have to believe this if they're in this movement, teach that God is continuing to give new revelation in the form of someone speaking in tongues or some supernatural vision. That's a form of revelation. Thus saith the Lord. Now, if you have a thus saith the Lord, what do you do with what Jude says? Jude says that faith was once and for all given to the saints. It's not being given now. There are other people today who don't really add to God's revelation, but they attack it. They attack what has already been given in his word by telling us that we really can't understand his word because they say truth is all relative and therefore we cannot objectively study scripture for propositional information and doctrine. So what they would say is this is what it means to you, but this isn't. We don't know what it means to you may be something different than what it means to me. That's baloney. That's ridiculous if you hear that. Jude says just the opposite. He tells us that God's word is a body of objective truth, a recognizable body of teaching about Jesus Christ that is normative for all the church to believe and obey. That's precisely what Jude is saying. Now, this also means that no one has the right to come along and change and distort the teachings of the Bible, saying, for example, that, well, you know, we live in a modern world and... um, In this modern world, we have a new type of morality. So we're throwing off the biblical norms for sexual behavior. We've just advanced in our society. Just advanced. Or we are now redefining the issue of marriage and divorce to fit our lifestyle. Or the roles of men and women have changed from Bible days because we've become more sophisticated as we've matured in society. Jude tells us that God isn't giving us new revelation, nor has he given us a body of information that cannot be objectively understood and obeyed. It can be. Nor has he given us a flimsy revelation that is subject to change based on society's values. I remember speaking to an unsaved man a few years ago about... uh, about the issue of abortion and that it was the killing of babies. And this man said to me, how long ago was the Bible written? And what he was saying is that, you know, it was written so long ago, it's not relevant for us today. We don't follow those cultural norms. Jude is saying just the opposite. Jude is saying just the opposite. God has given us once and for all revelation of truth about his son That is not changing. That must not be distorted. That can be understood because it's delivered to the saints. And it is our responsibility, and this is the point, to fight for it, to defend it when it comes under attack, and to make sure that the truth that the apostles taught is the same truth that we're teaching today. That truth was under attack in Jude's day. That's why he writes in verse 
For for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. He says they're ungodly people. And they take the grace of God and they say, you know what? God is so gracious. Live any way you want. You don't have to obey his word because he's so forgiving. Now, we'll look more at verse four. We'll go in depth next week about that. And as I said, there are so many important truths in verse four that I don't want to superficially treat them tonight as time moves on. But in the time that we have remaining, I want to give you some very practical thoughts on how you can be involved in contending for the faith. After all, that's really the primary point of this letter. And it seems to me that many people who teach the, uh, the letter of Jude sort of miss the point, And they're describing so much about these false teachers that they, they don't really exhort those who they're teaching to fight for the truths of the Bible. And don't tell them how they can fight for the truths of the Bible. So, so before we move on in our study of Jude, let me offer you some practical ways that you can be involved in contending for the faith. First of all, if you're going to contend for the faith, you need to make sure that you know the faith that you are to defend. You can't defend something you don't know. This means that you and I have to have a clear understanding of the essential doctrines of Christianity, such as the meaning of Christ's atonement, his resurrection, man's sinfulness, grace, faith, God's justice, his love, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, a biblical understanding of sanctification, that is, how we grow spiritually and how we address sin issues in our lives, the inspiration, the authority of the scriptures. And I'm not talking about, well, I just, I know we hold to that. I'm talking about going in depth so that you can defend it. So when it's attacked, you, you can counterattack and say something of significance. There, there are many people, many Christians who have sat in churches for years and years and years and have heard thousands of sermons, but they cannot defend the faith. They, they couldn't tell somebody how to grow spiritually apart from, well, just read your Bible. They, they wouldn't know how to address a sin issue. If someone came to them and said, well, the way I'm addressing it is I'm just letting God take care of it. They would have no clue what to say. In fact, they probably would say that sounds good. That's not what the Bible says. Just give it to God. The Bible says you have a responsibility to obey. Put off the old man, put on the new man. Think biblically. I mean, all, all of this, if, if somebody um, attacked, for example, the atonement of Christ, what would they say? What would you say? You need to go deeper than, than surface information about these doctrines. So I would suggest that you find some good books on these doctrines. Good books on these doctrines. So not only spending time studying the Bible, but invest some money in purchasing books that deal with biblical doctrines. Now, as enjoyable as you might find Christian novels, and I find some of them very enjoyable, make sure that's not all you're reading. Make sure it's not all you're reading. Visit the book table that we have as a ministry here. Ask your elders for recommendation. Borrow as many books as you want from Pastor Joe's library. You just go in there, take... I'm kidding about that. Sort of. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding about that. And for those of you who may not be a part of Lakeside, I would encourage you to be in a church where doctrine is taught. Where doctrine is taught. The mood of the church today is to get away from doctrine. Hardly anyone wants to deal with doctrine. They want to give practical sermons of a contemporary nature. 
And, and while I'm all for sermons that are practical and help us to apply God's word to our lives, we do need to make sure that uh, our applications are based on sound doctrine. History repeats itself. I, I was just listening to some uh, messages by my friend Phil Johnson on on Charles Spurgeon. Some church asked Phil, apparently some youth camp, asked Phil to, to come and give, I, I think, probably a whole week of messages, not, not from the Bible, but about the life of Charles Spurgeon. He is one of, Phil is one of the experts uh, in our world on um, the great English preacher. And one of the things that caught my attention is that in Spurgeon's day, he was, he was very doctrinal, and some didn't like it. Some didn't like it. There was a very well-known man, an English preacher in that city of London at the same time, named Joseph Parker. Joseph Parker, while an evangelical, had a, a different style of ministry than Spurgeon. Spurgeon was doctrinally oriented, and Parker was more contemporary. And what Phil said is that if you read Spurgeon's sermons today and Parker's sermons, Parker's sermons were so contemporary and so sort of hip in that age that it's so outdated today. Nobody even knows what he's talking about because that was, that was over 100 years ago. But you read Spurgeon and more and more people are, are discovering Charles Spurgeon and you will enrich yourself spiritually. It's doctrine. That never changes. You can always apply the word based on doctrine, but not, not these contemporary messages that just want to give practical points, and, and that's, that's the whole substance. So one way to contend for the faith is make sure you know the faith, that you can defend it, that you have some in-depth understanding of key Bible doctrines. A second way that you can be involved in contending for the faith is by being active in some type of discipleship ministry. You're, you and I are to be involved in investing our lives in others by passing the truths of Scripture on to them. That's really the primary message of Second Timothy, which we uh, studied not too long ago. Actually, we recently finished that. Paul, throughout Second Timothy, is telling this young man, I'm dying, or I'm about to, to die, I'm in prison here. I pass along the truth to you. Notice in Second Timothy, notice how often... Paul mentions this, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain it. Hold on to it. He says in verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Paul entrusted the truth to this man. And he's telling them, hold on to it and pass it on to others. He gets very explicit in chapter 2, verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others as well. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul said, remember I taught these truths to you. Remember who taught this to you. So the question is, are you involved in any kind of ministry where you are imparting the truth to others? It might be a small Bible study. It might be a one-on-one discipleship ministry. It might be a class that you're teaching. In whatever field it is, it ought to be that you are passing the truth on to others. That's, that's what the Great Commission says. Go make disciples. We are to be involved in that. Well, let me offer you one way you can be involved in the training of others. 
you can financially support faithful ministries that do teach sound doctrine. Do teach sound doctrine. And you can faithfully support especially Bible colleges and seminaries who are staying true to the Word of God and teaching men the sound doctrines of Scripture. And may I take it a step further? And teaching men who will exposit the sound doctrine of Scripture. The point of a seminary, it seems to me, is to train men in the sound doctrines of the Word of God so that they can be able expositors to go out in various churches and go through the Scriptures verse by verse. This is one reason why I serve on the board of the Expositors Seminary, a school that's a few years old in in our area and actually four campuses, because I believe in the work of training men to proclaim the Word of God. This is why... Uh, Every year I find it a privilege and honor to be asked to teach in Italy at the Italian Theological Academy because men from all around Italy come to be taught the Word of God. My class is teaching them uh, the basics of expository preaching so they can go back to their churches and teach the Word. So I think if you're looking for ministries beyond the local church, not pulling money from your local church, but, be, but above and beyond the local church, if you're looking to invest in ministries, invest in those ministries that are training people in the sound doctrines of the Word of God. Another way you can be involved in contending for the faith is to make sure that you are obedient to the truths of Scripture in your own life. Make sure of that. Why? People often begin to change their doctrines to fit a deviant lifestyle. When you examine false teachers and you examine apostates, you'll find that behind the scenes there is often something of a deviant behavior. And they adjusted their theology to justify their behavior. This is how they deal with feelings of guilt. If they don't want to remain married to their spouse, they simply change their view of what the Bible teaches about the permanency of marriage. This is the way they don't have to feel as guilty because they have convinced themselves that what they're doing is not a violation of the Bible. They just interpret the Bible differently. So one way we can make sure that we're not involved in any way of distorting Scripture is by obeying it, obeying it. And finally, we contend for the faith by being faithful in our witness and evangelism about Jesus and the gospel. We are called to stand for the truths of the gospel by making sure we don't water them down to appease people, to keep from offending somebody, because we're we're afraid that they'll be annoyed at us. So we contend for the faith by telling them the truth, that, that they're sinners And we tell them who Jesus Christ is and why he came to earth. We tell them about God's love as well as his justice, that he he hates sin and he is angry, the Bible says, all day long with those who are unbelievers because of his holy hatred for sin. We tell them about their need to repent and what it means, not simply changing your mind, it's forsaking your sin and that they have to believe the gospel, which involves surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. We tell them those things. We stay true to the word of God. So I urge you to take these truths to heart tonight. There is only one body of God's revelation, and that is the unchanging 
Bible. He gave it to us. He gave it to the community of believers back in the first century. And it's not subject to change or improvement. But every generation of Christians, ours included, is faced with new attacks on the faith. So we need to fight for these truths. This is a command from God. It needs to be obeyed. You can be involved in that, contending for the faith in these practical ways that I've, I've suggested to you. But we must be involved in doing this or else we're not obeying God. Let's bow for prayer. And I want to urge those who perhaps have never personally come to faith in Christ. We talked about the faith, but there is certainly the urging in Scripture to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do urge you on his behalf to believe the gospel. It is the same message the apostles preached in their day. Repent and trust Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, I urge you, make sure. Make sure you do that before it's too late. Father, thank you for teaching us truths, Lord, that were so important to Jude. They're still important to us. They were important to the readers back then. They're, they are important to us now. Lord, we live in an age in which the gospel is attacked as has never been before. Books coming out that attack the scriptures. Speakers attacking the Bible Speakers in churches attacking the Bible, liberal theologians attacking the authenticity of your word. From all fronts, we're attacked. Help us, Lord. Help us as a church to contend for the faith. Help us individually. Lord, I pray for each one of us to think about somebody we can pour our lives into in some, in some measure, someone we can train. I, I pray that you'll give us wisdom about ministries to support I pray for seminaries and Bible colleges that are remaining true to the word of God, Lord. Keep them from turning into liberal institutions, which has happened so often in our world. I I pray for the heads and, and boards and leaders of those schools to make sure they hire only the best teachers and not try to gain educational credibility at the expense of biblical truth. Lord, I would, I would pray for all of us to, to, um, to be convicted of our need to study more your word, to know the truths of the word of God. And it's such a shame that there are so many people who have been in evangelical churches for years, but they could not defend some basic Bible doctrines. They would simply say, well, you have to go see the pastor. So I pray, Lord, that this will convict us and motivate us to do something about it. I pray that you'll help us to be faithful as we witness, as we go forth into the mission field this week. May we be faithful to the gospel, regardless of how it's received or rejected. And so I pray, Lord, apply these truths to our lives. May they, uh, may they be those truths that uh, just uh, sort of wiggle their way down into our beings and we digest them and they become a very part of our fiber. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.